Well, good morning, greetings in the name of Jesus. God bless you all who've come out this morning and taken some time aside again to consider the word of the Lord, fellowship with the saints. This morning, I... um, have a message entitled here, A Desire to Fear Thy Name. A Desire to Fear Thy Name. I'd like to talk about that title for a bit. It's actually taken from an account in the scripture of a people who desired to fear the name of the Lord. And thy is referring to the Lord, the name of the Lord. A desire to fear thy name. And we're going to look at that account as an example. But what does it mean to have a desire to fear thy name? And I'd like to just lift up the fact here this morning that this desire that we're talking about here is more than just a hope or a wish for some good thing. We might desire, or we might say, it would really be nice if, and you fill in the blank of all kinds of things that you think would be great or nice. But what we're talking about this morning, if you have a desire to fear the name of the Lord, which is our topic here, but just this kind of desire I'm talking about here, and which I believe is uh, borne out by the example and uh, in the words of the Scripture, is that This is going to involve uh, your effort and participation. In other words, this desire motivates you to do something about it. Um, Just an example, very simple one, is uh, it's nice to take vacations, isn't it? And I can think of some really nice places that would be nice to visit. Uh, One of them that comes to mind is Switzerland. I've never been there, but I've seen pictures. It sounds like a great place to go. And I already imagined uh, what it might be like to go there. But as of yet... That desire hasn't come to this level that I'm talking about where I actively plan something and labor toward going there. It just hasn't risen to that place. So a desire to fear thy name has to be more than just say, You know, it would be really great to sit in a church where everybody loves the Lord and is on fire for God. Wouldn't that be so nice? 
Well, yes, that would be nice. That would be really nice. But we're talking about desire that will think, oh, that's nice. Um, you know, I wish we could find a place like that. How about making a place like that? The desire to fear thy name. And I think we have a concept of what it means to fear the name of the Lord. But again, that fear is that of reverence, of honor, and of having a heart that just beats to see God magnified. So that takes us way beyond ourselves and puts us into that greater work, as our brother's been talking about, the example of the bees, for the greater cause. We have, we have enlisted for the greater cause. And fearing the name of the Lord, um, first of all, between us personally and God, is that we give deference to His will and His desires and say, Not my will, but thine be done. Even as Jesus came down from heaven, not to do His own will, but the will of him that sent him. And so, also beyond that personal fear of the Lord, then is also a desire to see the name of the Lord exalted and advanced and to build in his kingdom collectively that greater cause. A desire to fear thy name. So how is it with you? Do you have a desire? As in, oh, that would really be nice. Or is there desire that motivates you to get involved and to to really see it happen. The example I'm looking at and where I drew this phrase is in the book of Nehemiah. And I'd like for you to turn with me there. We're going to go through this book and try to draw out some lessons. There are many lessons in this book, and I'm sure we won't touch nearly all of them. But they apply to many different situations in our life. And they could certainly apply in a greater sense to the church and the people of God in general. I will be reading portions of this uh, book uh, from various chapters and just kind of making application and commentary as we go along. Um, 
So, I think we'll start in chapter 1, and I will just read these, what is it, 11 verses in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Chislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed, by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now this is an interesting account of a man who had a vision. You know, there are many other prophets in the Scripture of whom it is said that in such and such a time or such and such a place the word of the Lord came unto him and said. But that's not what we find here in Nehemiah. And I just had to let my mind um, travel a bit on what situation Nehemiah was here and what he was looking at. And to just put it in simple words, 
He and his people had been taken captive out of their land, and you know, this was now at, uh, at the end of their 70 years in exile. And I'm, I don't know what age Nehemiah was here, what memories he had before, but he certainly knew the scriptures, he knew their history, and he knew even the promises that God had given. We read it here. It was part of his prayer. Remember, I beseech thee, verse 8, thy, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. And he's acknowledging that that had happened. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So picture Nehemiah here. He is in a distant land. He's actually working for the king. He's recalling what had happened to his people. He was identifying with them. He also saw the promise of God and he realized that God may yet do just exactly what he said and bring them back to the land. And so he made an appeal to God in heaven. Let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. Now it would have been easy, I think, for Nehemiah to just say, you know, I am here in the palace and I'm a servant. And I might wish for a better position, but it really isn't that bad. Conditions are pretty good. I have a stable job. He could have been content just to stay there and do his own thing and not exert himself in any wise to pursue something further. Who would blame him? I mean, it wasn't like the Lord came to him in a vision and said, Nehemiah, rise up, I am sending you. There were prophets that that happened to you. Um, but I see Nehemiah as a man who simply took the word of God, he looked at it, and he began to see a possibility. And he began to think and to to maybe even dream, if I want to use that term, or, or vision would be a better term, but he began to think about what it would be like if God fulfilled his promise here. And he began to pray toward that end, and he made an appeal. He said, let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, singular, personal, he's referring to himself, and... To the prayer of thy servants, plural, others, who desire to fear thy name. I think he recognized that it's going to 
rest largely with those who have a desire, one that motivates them to do something beyond just a good idea or a wish. I wish it could be so. I wish we could go back to our homeland. I wish we were not in this distress. I wish our nation were prosperous and and on and on you could go and list all the things you might wish were better. But he said, Lord, please hear our prayer. Now we read through the book of Nehemiah and we think of, okay, so Nehemiah, he was a leader. He was, he was a man who, you know, he... He was in charge of things, so of course he could do something. Well, it's not where he started out. I don't see him as a man um, of great power, but he had a key place. He had a position where he could, he could influence something with the king. And he trembled at the thought of it because it says that he prayed that he would have mercy in the sight of this man, and I believe he's talking about the king, because he was the king's cupbearer. Because even though he had this vision of what God could do, and a desire to see it done, and even a willingness to go, he recognized that there's one, one big hurdle. That is, what is the king going to say about this? Because the king wasn't going to give him permission, his part of it was going to be pretty small. So I don't know what Nehemiah at this point may have imagined that could happen, but it was all out there in a faraway place yet at this point. And I would just suggest that Many times the work of God is advanced by a man who will sit down, as our brother said, for 30 minutes. That may take more than that. It may take a vision of some years, maybe, or months at least. But does our desire motivate us to start thinking about what God could do if we begin to apply ourselves to a certain work. And I just say that Nehemiah here was a man who was willing to at least catch a vision and do what he could. And he began to pray. I see he had faith in God. And we know that without faith it is impossible to please him. We must believe that God is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. That faith has to come with a vision of what God can do. And remember Nehemiah knew the promise of God, and he referred to it, and he believed that it applies to them 
in their time and in their place. And we likewise need to be able to take the Word of God and make it apply to our time and place, meaning, okay, we might pray for a big revival and we might have a vision of some great thing God can do, but it has to start here. It has to start with what I can accomplish and, or you understand what I mean? Something that I can put my hands to. You see, we can't assume that, oh, God is going to do some great mighty thing that uh, I'll get a lot of credit for, but rather to see what God would do for those who come in faith. He came with faith in God, a vision of what God can do. He believed that God would do it, and he began to pray in faith for that to come to pass. But remember, not much had happened yet at this point. It was all just out there. Well, let's read on here. Chapter 2. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, if it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchers, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said unto the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me to the governors beyond the river, that they may convey me over till I come unto Ju into Judah. And a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertaineth to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. We'll stop reading there for a moment. And see that Nehemiah here had received... Maybe we would say the first answer to his prayer. He had prayed that he would find favor in the sight of the king. And when that came to pass, 
He immediately, as he says here in verse 8, And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. This was God granting him favor in the sight of the king. So, he took great courage in that. Big step forward here. The door is opening. The king sent him with captains of the army and horsemen and also a ladder of of, um, of cooperation, I guess, or a desire. See, there were some people still back in the area of Jerusalem and they had a, a rulers over them that were uh, sub-ruling under this king. And so this appeal to the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams. If I understand the setting correctly here, this would have been in the land of Israel. It would have been timber that belonged to the children of Israel by right, but it was being ruled and controlled by this foreign king. But he was basically... uh, getting permission from the king to use their own timber out of the forest. But he had to have the consent and, and uh, the, uh, the authority to make that happen and to get the proper uh, timbers available. So it wasn't that he was necessarily expecting the king to finance his project, but he did have to make petition and go through the proper authorities. I believe Nehemiah here was submitting to what God provided for him in the way of progress in this project. In other words, he was subject to the king. And he didn't uh, come to the king with, uh, with any attitude that this is my right, and you need to listen to this. Um, I had to think, while I'm lifting up the, um, the idea of a vision, I've also seen people who make shipwreck by going at it their own way. They see something ahead and they think this is a good thing and it well may be a good thing, but is it God's time and is it God's way and is it, is it done right and do you have... Uh, people like-minded who will desire to fear the Lord, to assist and help you in the work. And, well, they may finally just shrug it all off and say, well, I, I've got to go or else. And uh, away they go. Well, it's a possibility to just make shipwreck by doing it your own way. But Nehemiah here humbled himself before the Lord, made appeal, found the king agreeable by the hand of God, and he went. Well, they went there, but, verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, heard of it, 
It grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, isn't that amazing? Well, maybe not so amazing. You can see the hand of Satan behind this one. Because God is for his people. God is for something happening. And these men were grieved that the welfare of the children should be advanced. They apparently had some position of prominence and did not want that destroyed. But you can mark it down that every work of God is going to meet with opposition. And let me warn you, that begins on a very small level. Let's suppose you realize before God that you have um, come short in one of the areas our brothers preached about this week. And you determine by God's grace that things are going to be better. And you can see a specific area where God would want you to advance. And lo and behold, come next Tuesday, you're just hit up alongside the head, as it were, with some big old obstacle. And yet you had thought, you know, this, this is the way forward. The enemy will be grieved to see that you're actually intending to advance. And he is going to set some opposition against you. And it may come in some surprising ways, but just, just be forewarned that it's going to come. And that's just the simple things. That's not some big foreign mission. <laughs> that's just trying to advance in your own personal life. But so it was here. But he persisted, verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me, save the beast that I rode upon. And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well and to the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. And I would assume because of the much rubble, so great, not even his beast was able to get through. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley and so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work." Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, 
that we be no more a reproach. Then I took them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. They strengthened their hands for this good work. I believe Nehemiah set about to make an accurate assessment of what the situation was. He was willing to acknowledge how it really was and the destitution that had come upon the city and how it had been broken down and burned with fire. And while it grieved him, you remember how he wept even when he had first heard about it, and now he's seeing it firsthand, and he's going secretly by night, he's not telling others. And I see a picture here of a man who let the vision burn in his heart without necessarily boasting about what great thing he's going to do or, or uh, what, um, you know, some mighty work that he intends to start on here in any boastful way. But simply, after he had viewed it, he saw what it was, he came back, and in simple words, he told them what the situation was and said, look, here's what it is. Isn't there something we could do? We have a good start here. We have the good hand of God upon us. We have the king's blessing. Let's rise up and build. He was able to lay that vision before them and encourage them. And they strengthened their hands to work. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build but ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Well, there's a lot of application one can make. And I'm not sure even where to go with all of that. But I'll just mention this about opposition and the work of the enemy. It says here that they laughed us to scorn and despised us. You'll find later, and I don't know if we'll cover all of this, but just note as we go through here, the enemy employed a lot of different tactics to try and stop this work. They, uh, first of all, in what well, we looked at verse 10, 
we can see the condition of their heart. They were grieved that somebody would come and advance the kingdom of God. Here they started by laughing him to scorn and despising them. Later, they came about with armed, uh, outright opposition to try and overthrow the work. And God's people, they armed themselves against that. You will find they came by deception. They tried several different cunning tactics to dissuade them. And so you will find opposition in any advancement of God's work, whether it be your own life personally or some great uh, effort you in, embark on. They'll be scorned. They'll be despising. They'll be outright hostility and, and perhaps even active opposition. There will be deceptive tactics brought against you. You need to be aware and armed against all of that. And by the grace of He goes on a little more in detail. Let, let's just look down um, Verse 9, also I said, it is not good that ye do, ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. And I've just entitled this lesson to draw from it is that of economic solidarity. You know what the word solidarity means? It means of one, united. One, um, we stand with our brother, it would be in simple terms, solidarity, economic solidarity. The situation, it seems here, was that some people, because of the famine, and in order to buy food, had to mortgage their properties. And because of the great taxes that were levied, they had to mortgage lands and vineyards in order to pay their taxes. So here they were in great debt, and oftentimes to other brethren who were more wealthy, would... Uh, take the mortgage on that property or vineyard or whatever. And so here these people were in bondage to their brethren, paying, paying usury, paying interest on the loans they had to buy food and to pay their taxes. And Nehemiah was very sad and distressed. He was angry, it says that such a case should be. And he implored the people to leave off this kind of usury, taking usury of your brethren. Now I've heard this used as a, as a, uh, as a tool of instruction that we shouldn't exact interest from when we loan money to our brother. 
And I would say, yes, that, that's a good application. I think maybe that should be the first lesson we draw from it. Um, but I think there's something much deeper here, and it touches on this matter of economic solidarity. And I think it's very interesting that this is in context of a very great work they were about in building the wall and in trying to advance the kingdom of God and to see God honored and glorified. And suddenly the subject turns to just the everyday uh, finances, if you will, and the distress they found themselves in. Can you think of another time when economic solidarity was the order of the day? My man went to Acts chapter 4. Verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought to the things which he possessed was his own that they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. That was at the foundation of the church. It was one of the first orders of business. Common everyday finances were affected by what God did in those days. And right in the middle of saying that they gave great uh, with great power gave the apostles witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace upon them all. And now we're talking about finances. Well, economic solidarity. The situation here with Nehemiah, I think what he was trying to appeal to them was, these are our brethren. Is there no heart for our brethren? Why don't you feel with them? Verse 5, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. My debt is your debt. Your debt is my debt. Or how, how is that? Is that? Is that reality? And it goes... First of all, I believe, according to the scripture, it's when there's a willing mind. God calls that as the first requirement before we even consider whether there's enough money to cover the need or not. It's first whether there be a willing mind. So it's how we think, first of all. And then... If we have ability, then we work it out. Uh, 
But can we see that it's our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. In other words, that feeling of being of one, one heart and one mind. Well, he goes on in this chapter talking about how the Lord provided for their... um, He talks about the provisions that he had and that they didn't uh, take money from the governor, verse 14, uh, for 12 years. I and my brethren have not eaten the bread of the governor. It seems like they didn't feel it was in their place to be supported by the government. A lot of application you can make on that today. But they rather trusted God, and it seems like he had an abundance of provision here. He didn't tax his brethren, and he didn't uh, depend on the government for a handout. But they, um, verse 16, Yea, also I continued in the work of this wall, neither bought we any land, and all my servants were gathered thither unto the work. So they kept going. Let's move on to chapter 6. There were plots against Nehemiah. Now it came to pass, verse 1, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein. Uh Uh-oh, these people are actually accomplishing something. Though at the time I had not set up the doors unto the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. If I could just do a play on words, Nehemiah's response was, Oh no, we are not going. Because he recognized they thought to do him mischief. Appears like they wanted some kind of Negotiations, maybe, or something. I'm not sure what they hope to accomplish. But he said, no, I cannot come down. We are doing a great work. Verse 3, why should the work cease? Whilst I leave it and come down to you. Yet they send unto me four times after this sort. Boy, these enemies were persistent. They kept after it, but it was to no avail, so they changed tactics. Then sent Sanballo, verse 5, his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, It is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall. Thou mayest be their king according to these words. 
And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. And now shall it be reported to the king according to these words, Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Seems like he was insinuating a false accusation here that Nehemiah is taking things into his own hands, and if the report of this comes back to the king, it's not going to go well with you. You better come down and negotiate with us. Verse 8. Then I sent unto him, saying, There are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And note how he again appeals to God's protection and God's provision for their efforts and and to protect them from the hand of the enemy. Verse 10, Afterward I came unto the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mahetabil, who was shut up, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us shut the doors of the temple, for they will come to slay thee. Yea, in the night will they come to slay thee. Ah. You better take some action here. There's a plot against you. You're you're about to be had. You better come into the temple. And I don't understand all of the context here, but I can certainly understand from the context that this he saw as a plot to make him afraid. And there was a plausible way to save himself. But for some reason, he saw this very clearly as not of God. It is something simply to make him afraid and to go into the temple would be a mistake. Verse 11, And I said, Should such a man as I flee... And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And lo, I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me. For Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Therefore was he hired that I should be afraid and do so, and sin, that they might have matter for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My, I, I don't understand all. It seems a plot a little deeper than my mind can wrap around, not understanding all of the details here, but Nehemiah recognized it as a devious plot sent by a man who professed and, and posed as one who's there to help him and give him good advice, but he recognizes that he was hired by the enemy to come in and try to deceive him or turn his heart away. And I see here two things that Nehemiah was able to resist, and that was deceit and fear. And both of those he resisted by 
depending on God. Good example for us. Not yielding to deceit and fear. I had to think of the warning in the New Testament about not being tossed about with uh, every wind of doctrine and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. Those things are real in our day. Cunning craftiness. They have all the appearance of being out for your good, giving you some good advice. But if it's deceptive, not according to the will of God, and it's based on fear, then don't listen to it. By the hand of God, we can discern, and should discern. We should exercise, and even as the New Testament says, in that context, you know, don't be deceived by every wind of doctrine. Don't just accept everything that comes along, but discern it lest you be cunningly led astray. Well, in verse 15, we have the completion of their project. So the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month, Elal, in fifty and two days. Isn't God amazing? Fifty-two days they built the wall. And just think back. Started out with Nehemiah thinking about what God could do. Beginning to pray about it. Beginning to consider. And looking at the promises of God and saying, God is able. God can do it. God promised he's going to do it. I will by his grace stand on that promise. He prayed. And he began to work. He found other men who would go with him. He got it cleared with his authorities. Amen. God answered prayer. Look at this. He turned the heart of the king. I have the king's support and blessing. And he went. He faced opposition. And by the grace of God, he was able to recognize the opposition for what it was, whether it was, came in the form of scorn, whether it came by derision, by outright armed opposition, by deception, by cunning craftiness, and even by sending a man who appeared to be on their side to dissuade him and to cause him to stumble in fear and pursue his vision. He encouraged people by the hand of the Lord to rise up and build. They were able to find a place for every man to labor. They were able to pursue it in spite of many oppositions. Um, just comes to mind that I think I missed one point here. I see it, yes, in chapter 4, verse 23. 
So neither I, nor my brethren, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard which followed me, none of us put off our clothes, saving that every one put them off for washing. Wow. Even skipping a shower. Now I imagine in that day, a, a bath or a shower was probably a little more time-consuming and involved than ours tends to be. Just hop in and turn the dial and there's hot water and everything. It's probably a lot more time-consuming, but I don't suppose they liked it any better than we would to go without a bath. But they were willing to sacrifice even simple and practical things to get the work done. And to do what had to be done to get it, to, to accomplish it. Are we willing to sacrifice? That's more than just being inconvenienced. That's being... Willing to sacrifice to get it done. So by the grace of God, from start to finish, Nehemiah was a man who obtained promises by faith. And he wasn't alone. He had, I don't know how many people, but there was quite a number who had a desire to fear the name of the Lord. Think about that. A desire to fear the name of the Lord. And we can sum it up, I believe, with what it says in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith they obtained promises. I want to encourage your vision and desire. First of all, starting with the little things, your personal growth, your personal life, the things that you see and maybe even heard this week that God wants to begin working. Have a desire that goes beyond just wishful thinking and saying, well, yeah, it would be nice but a desire that motivates you to seek the face of God to, to accomplish what needs to be done. And let God also raise a vision far beyond just yourself and your own personal growth to the greater cause, the kingdom, the advancement of his church, the advancement of his people to be what God wants them to be. Let's take lesson from Nehemiah. May the Lord bless you with that.